Geneva, where he's the pastor in 1537. He goes, he pastors somewhere else for a while. They, they beg him to come back a few years later in 1541. He comes back, he gets in the pulpit, and he picks up with the exact next text that he left off with when he left back in 1537. Because he believes in Lectio Continua, preaching through the Word of God. But there's at the same time, uh, there's also a tradition in Reformed churches of catechetical preaching, of, of using the catechism, often in the Lord's Day evenings or maybe in a mid, midweek sort of thing, uh, to, to use the catechism as your tool to give people right the whole counsel of God in a summary form, to give clear, concise answers to the, the big doctrines. The uh, Scottish General Assembly in 1720 recommended exactly this. It says, um, here's their recommendation. The General Assembly, considering how much it may conduce to the establishment of people in the Christian faith and to the promoting of piety and practice, that they be well instructed in the principles of our holy religion, do therefore recommend to the several ministers of this church punctually to observe the acts of formal General Assemblies for preaching catechetical doctrine. And that in these catechetical sermons, they more especially insist upon the great fundamental truths according to our confession of faith and catechisms. So a series on the Westminster Shorter Catechism is uh, nothing new for a Reformed church to have. This is not new, it's, it's very timely as well. So we're going to be following the catechism. Uh, but we're not going to... I'm, I'm going to try to not to preach um, sermons that are a conglomeration of texts. I might have a sermon that's a couple of texts together. My goal is going to be uh, to preach exegetical sermons where we take a text and we preach that text and we see there the theme of the catechism question in it. Um, I'd recommend to you that as, as we do this series, I challenge you, uh, we're going to be doing one approximately, one question a week. It's a great chance for you to uh, think about memorizing the catechism, or at least turning it over in your mind a few times during the week. You'll know what we'll be hitting uh, the next Sunday, so give some thought to, uh, perhaps on your own or with your family. Um, one, one question and answer a week isn't, isn't too much, probably, for most of us to manage. Um, so consider, consider doing that. You'll, you'll give yourself, by doing that, you'll give yourself this great mental uh, uh, resource with these clear answers for the doctrines of our faith. Okay, that's enough introduction. Let's, let's dive in. So our first question and answer, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, he wrote Treasure Island. Um, he, was, he himself wasn't a good Presbyterian, but he was the son of Presbyterians. It was in his blood. And he wrote this. He said that the first question and answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism strikes at the very roots of life. Right? It, it, it starts by going right down to the ultimate reason for existence. And it asks the biggest question of all. What's the point? What's the reason for everything existing? And specifically, what's the reason for my life? And the answer, you were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Created to glorify God. Created to rejoice in that glory of God. Created to magnify God and find your greatest joy and happiness in God. My goal was going to be to take the whole question and answer tonight. Um, 
But as I work through, I, I realize we're only going to have enough time to focus on the glory of God here. And next week we'll take the, the, the part about enjoying God. All right, the glory of God. The glory of God is everywhere in Scripture, right? You can't miss it. It's, it's, it's there. It's, it's like the main theme in the soundtrack, right? It's, 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 it, at every important moment, the glory of God is going to be coming through. And even when you don't see it in the foreground, you can hear it in the background. Everything's related to the glory of God. And Lane Tipton says, The central concern of the Scriptures is the glory of the triune God. And this is really the very heart of Reformed theology. This is kind of the, yeah, this is the, the core of, of what Reformed theology is. That we are committed 100% to the glory of God. God getting the glory in absolutely everything. We won't let God share that glory with any other because he says in his word that he won't let any other share his glory. And there's probably no text in Scripture which speaks more comprehensively about this than the text we just read, Romans 11:36. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That, that text is comprehensive. That means it covers everything. Right? From him, through him, and to him are all things. There's not a, there's not a nanoparticle or a millisecond that is not uh, included in, in that sentence that doesn't find its source in God and doesn't exist for the glory of God. Let's just get a, a quick sense of the context here before we dive into this particular verse, verse 36. What's, what's Paul doing, right? We're, so we're jumping into the, the middle of Romans, the, maybe partway through Romans here. What, what's going on in Paul's argument here? Well, he's wrapping up this argument he's been working on since chapter 1, uh, laying out the doctrine of the gospel, He's, he's, he's laid out for these uh, Christians in Rome who Christ is, what Christ has done, who they are as sinners, and what they need to know to be saved. And he's, he's worked through this material. And now he's transitioning at, in the gospel to, this, to, 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 the, uh, to the, the part of the letter where he's going to tell them what they need to do in response to this gospel. So that's, that's coming. The very next verse after verse 36 is Romans 12.1, uh, which says... Therefore, in light of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Right? That's the hinge of the whole letter to the Romans. So he's been building up to this. And so, in a sense, this sentence, from him, through him, to him, are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the, that's the summary of everything Paul said. That's the point at which the whole letter has been driving. The justification, the adoption, the sanctification, the perseverance, the glorification, the work of the Spirit. All of it driving to this point, to God be the glory. That's the point of Romans. So that's, that's the kind of the big picture context of the book, but there's this other aspect of the context here. Since chapter 9 in the book of Romans, Paul has been particularly focused on the issue of divine election. And, and this question of, well, what about the Jews? Did God's promises fail because so many of the Jews rejected the Jewish Messiah, Christ? Did this prove that God's promises fail? And Paul writes, no, this doesn't. God is sovereign. We, we cannot say that, uh, we, we cannot question him. He writes, God has mercy on whom he wills. God hardens whom he wills. We can't say to God, why did you make me thus? The, the, the clay pot can't talk back to the potter. Paul bows before the sovereign purposes of 
God. And, and that's what he does through chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. He's puzzling over this mystery. And, and, uh, but, but, but calling himself and calling the Romans there to, to bow before the Lord for his wisdom. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, Danish philosopher and a bit of a theologian, not a very good one, but he said a few good things. He said this, he, he compared knowing God to floating on the surface of the ocean, trying to tread water on the surface of the ocean, this idea of knowing God. And, and he writes this, the believer lies constantly out upon the deep with 70,000 fathoms of water under him. What a, what a picture. That's the picture here at the end of, uh, the end of Romans 11. Right? Oh, the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Right? Paul is, Paul is just on the surface of the infinite depth of God's being and wisdom. All this leads Paul to verse 36. Of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Let's unpack what he says. First, he says all things are of God. All things are from God. He's saying God is the source. Everything comes from God. He's the ultimate cause, the ultimate source of everything there is. Right? So, Think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What's it say? In the beginning, God. He's there at the beginning. The source of all things creates everything there is. Nothing exists apart from Him. He's the only one who's self-sufficient. The only one who is dependent on nothing else. Right? So that's true in creation. He's the, he's the source of all things in creation. He's also the source of all things in our redemption, isn't He? Every aspect of our salvation finds its source. In him. He's the, he's the cause of, of our election. He's the cause of, of our justification, our regeneration, every aspect of our salvation. He's the cause of our sanctification, our growth and holiness. He's the one who causes us to persevere, every single aspect of it. We don't save ourselves, don't sanctify ourselves, don't persevere by ourselves. He's the source, Paul is saying. Not only is he the source, He's also the means. Our text says, through him are all things. What's this mean? Through God are all things. What does Paul mean? A little light is shed on this perhaps by Hebrews 1, 2. It tells us the eternal Son, Jesus, is the one through whom God created the world. Uh, Colossians 1, 16 tells us all things were created through the Son. Hebrews 1, 3 says the Son is the one who sustains all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, it says. Right? God sustains everything by the word of his power. He sustains every atom. He sustains every, every breath that we are taking right now. He is sustaining it. He is sustaining our heartbeats. He is sustaining the law of gravity. He is sustaining everything that there is. Not continually creating it. He's created it, but now he's sustaining what he has already created. He's the means through which all things exist. In creation. But it's, again, it's not only creation. Paul is, is, is concerned about that. He's also concerned about redemption, about this area of salvation. God is the source of our salvation and the, He's the one who accomplishes it, he's saying. It's through God Himself that we've been saved. It's through His work that we've been saved. And therefore, Paul concludes, if all things are from God, all things are through God, then everything exists for Him. He's the, he's the goal. Everything's driving it. 
Everything is designed for His glory. All of creation, every aspect of our salvation is aimed at this. So Paul says, to God be the glory forever. What's the implication for us? Well, the, the Catechism tells us. It's that our chief end is the glory of God. This is, the, this is the reason we exist. It's for the glory of God. Nothing is from us. We aren't the source of anything. No, nothing is through us. And so nothing is to us. Nothing is for us, for our glory. It's for His. This is the central concern, right? This is what we're saying. This is the central concern of the whole Bible. The glory of God. And that means, brothers and sisters, that it is God's central concern. What is God's chief end, we might ask? It's to glorify God and enjoy God forever. This is God's concern, to see himself glorified. John Piper writes this. He says, God's ultimate goal is to preserve and display his infinite and awesome greatness and worth. Other scriptures make this clear as well. I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 36 here, uh, 22 to 32. It's a bit of a longer text, but it shows us that God's driving concern in saving his people is his own glory. I'll listen, listen to these words. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Isn't that remarkable? God says, Israel, I'm going to save you, but you need to know this lesson. It's not because of who you are. It's not for your sake. It's not for your glory. It's for mine that I might be glorified. Brothers and sisters, that is a radical idea. That is a radically God-centered way to think. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for God. That is the heart of the Christian faith. Nothing could be more at odds, could it, with the catechism of our culture than to say that our chief end is the glory of God. Uh, our culture says, put yourself at the center of the orbit and, and line up all the planets of your life around yourself. Uh, right? If someone in your life is toxic, get rid of them. 
Uh, if, if you don't like uh, your career, change it. If you don't like your spouse, change it. If you don't like your gender, change it. You do you. You be happy. You glorify yourself. Love yourself. Be true to who you are. That's the culture's message, right? That attitude that comes so naturally to us, doesn't it? Um, our culture preaches it loudly. It's the, uh, the antithesis, the very opposite of what we're called to here. And all too often, loved ones, isn't it true the church can get infected with that same way of thinking? And our, our, our theology can become shaped by a, a self-centered and man-centered way of thinking. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, right, the great pastor, theologian, of uh, the 18th century in New England. Um, he saw this happening in his own day. He, he, he looked at his own time, and he said that people in his day and age were becoming man-centered in their theology and in the life of their churches. He said this. It's one of the great reasons why speculative points of doctrine, he means just, you know, doctrine of God, um, why speculative points of doctrine are thought to be of so little importance that the modern religion consists so little in respect to the divine being and almost wholly in benevolence to men. Edwards is saying, we're all taken up with, with, uh, with a man-centered theology. We're concerned so much about God's actions with us and to us and for us, and we're not concerned at all about who God is and the glory of God. If it was true in the 1740s, how much more is it true in the 2020s? Right, that our, even in the church, our theology has become man-centered. Uh, one of the a sociologists has said that Christianity in our culture is uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism. That it's, that it's moralizing, it's, it's, it's therapeutic, it's designed to help us feel better about ourselves more than anything else. And it's deistic, it's about a distant God. Christianity is not these things. Well, this this is not just a cultural thing, though, is it? It's it's also this is this is what our human hearts, this is what our hearts, your heart and mine, also are uh, bent towards, isn't it? Um, we are self-centered by nature, by our sinful nature. We want ourselves to be at the center, not the Lord. The Puritan Thomas Manton wrote about this. In his comments in the Lord's Prayer, he writes, Self and God are the two things that come in competition. Right? There's this war between our hearts and, and the glory of God. We don't want the glory of God. We want the glory of ourselves. We want people to think that we are great more than to think that God is great. Manton continues, he writes this, Our chiefest care and affection should mainly run upon the glory of God and that God might be advanced and lifted up on high. Loved ones, does your chief care and affection run mainly upon the glory of God? Do you live your whole life to that end, for the glory of God? We exist for God's glory, loved ones. That is our chief end. The ultimate reason we exist is to bring Him glory. There's no higher or better calling than that. He's the most glorious one there is. He is glorious. That's why he's worthy of this glory. At the same time, as we, as we consider these things, if there's nothing greater than uh, to bring glory to God, if that's the highest purpose of our existence, then we would also say there's nothing worse than rebelling against that glory, is there? 
The worst thing we can do, right, if our chief end is to glorify God, the worst thing we can do is bring dishonor to Him. To not glorify Him. That's the essence of sin, isn't it? To want to dishonor Him, reject Him, reject His glory, defame Him. Paul writes this, right? Romans 3.23 All have sinned. What's sin, Paul? Fallen short of the glory of God. Only someone writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit could think like that. Right? That sin, the, the essence of sin, the essence of evil is to defame God, to, to fall short of His glory. I think we're much more likely to think of the essence of evil as harming someone, bringing pain to someone, suffering to someone, wronging someone, offending someone. But Scripture says sin is, first of all, sin against the holiness and the glory of God. In fact, Scripture says the reason sins against one another are serious is because, ultimately, they're sins against God. And we are image bearers of God. David reflects on this same point. In Psalm 51, Psalm 51.4, he writes this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David says, You only, Lord, have I sinned against. But what has he done? He's committed adultery, perhaps rape. He's had someone murdered to cover it up. He's lied. He's destroyed someone's family. And he turns in his prayer to God, and he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. Did he sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Of course. But his greatest grief is that he has sinned against God, against the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, our chief end is the glory of God. That's what we were made for, to lift him up to glorify and magnify Him, to proclaim His worth, to show forth His worth and His beauty. But we fall short of that, don't we? We miss, we miss the mark. We don't glorify God the way we were supposed to. Uh, instead, we try to dishonor Him and, and defame Him and smear His name. And we have an, a, an obsession with ourselves, trying to put ourselves at the center of all things. We are not, as, as it was said of Jonathan Edwards, God-entranced. What's our hope then? What's in our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Right, Because He's the one who lives perfectly, consistently, without failing for the glory of God above everything else. He's the one who is, right, as, as the author of the Hebrews puts it, He Himself is the radiance of the glory of God. And that glory of God comes down, and, and in Christ we see what that glory of God looks like. And it looks like the grace of God on display as Jesus lays down His life for sinners. This is, the, this is the, the peak of God's glory, the apex of it. It's, it's, it's in the gospel of grace revealed to us in His Son that He might save those who defame Him, that they might learn to love Him and praise Him. This is the song we'll sing for eternity. Revelation 5.12 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So, loved ones, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? As we consider our chief end, and as we think about how we need to live all our lives in the light of God and who He is, to lift Him up and magnify Him, not ourselves. As we think over those things, right? Trust in Christ, not yourself. He's the, he's the one who laid down His life for all your failings, all your falling shortness of the glory of God. He's the one who perfectly glorified God for our sakes, 
And that righteousness is ours as we trust in Him. And trust in His, His, His sufficiency. Right? He's, gonna, he's given us His Spirit to help us live more God-entranced lives. To, to, to uncur- right? sin, sin and selfishness curves us in on ourselves. Right, I have the picture of, of Gollum curled up over the ring. Right? That's what sin does to us. It, it curves us in on ourselves, wanting the glory for ourselves. The gospel of God's grace comes and it, it straightens us up again. To live for our chief end, bringing glory to God, having Him at the center. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray.